1: The language, the world, the cleverness, the wit. There is nothing I don't like about this book. Seriously. I think Lies is probably in my top 10 favorite books ever. Maybe top five. This is from Patrick Rufus, and he says there's three things that this book specifically does better than Name of the Wind. Oh. Three things specifically. I can think of more than 3
0: <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da.
2: Welcome, welcome, everyone, to the Ramble Podcast. My name is Richard. My name is Austin. Today, we're talking about a good book. Good one. A good book, why finally. You, why can't
1: you just leave suspense and be like,
2: oh, is it a good book? They see my face in the thumbnail. We're talking about The Lies of Lock Lamora. It's a great book, actually, and I'm excited to talk about
1: it. Oh yeah. Now, someone's clicked on this video. They see it. What the hell is Lies of Locke Lamora? Who is that? Why is that? We're here to tell you. This book, it's written by Scott Lynch. Great author, and this really was this was his first book ever. Did you know that? His, Impressive, his debut novel, and this is a it's the first book of a series called The Gentleman Bastards. Now, what do you think of that name as a series? I mean, yeah, it's a oh. great
2: name. That that's one of the when it comes to series names. Yeah, there's a few people that kind of like they drop the ball a little bit. I like Red Rising, but Pierce Brown, I. He needs a better
1: series name. Than the Red Rising Saga?
2: Yeah, you know what I mean? Oh, like, okay. It, okay. It's like Red Rising. They have good titles, but there's no, like, saga. Mm. The Wheel of Time is a good, like, series name. The Song name. of Ice and Fire. Stormlight Archive. These are good names. The Gentleman
1: Bastards. That's, mm. that's up there. How does it feel that you're only half the name? You're a bastard, but you aren't a gentleman. So the Gentleman Bastard series, it's, <laughs> three books are currently out, okay? Three books. Along with, there's some short stories in there, but three main books. Yes, out. and the fourth book is coming out, we don't know. It's, it's been a while. It has been a while. Scott yep. Lynch, the author, has gone through the, some, uh, I think, anxiety and some certain issues, but he has not published the last book. It's been, I think, a decade. Don't yeah. let that draw you from not reading the book yet, because this book is actually finished. It's, he hasn't sent it to the publishers. It's in a good stage. Like the book is pretty much written, so it's looking positive. He's talking oh, okay. good about it. It's, I actually didn't he, even know that. He's not yet. Yeah, he's he's saying it's like he just hasn't sent it out, or he still's looking it over. That kind of thing. He's I, he might be trying to. I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. All I know is I trust him over George R. R. Martin. That's all I'm saying. That's that's it. That's that's
2: some bold claims. Because they're <laughs> about the same, aren't they? Of like we, it's been a, about a decade for George R. R. Martin. It's been about a decade for Scott Lynch and as well.
1: Patrick Ruffus. It's one he's in that trio. But out of like, if you're thinking George R. R. Martin, you're not reading Game of Thrones because you don't think he'll finish. You don't think Patrick Ruffus will finish Name of the Wind that series, King Kill Chronicles. Scott Lynch is the most likely to finish, and he will he will get at it. I believe. I believe. Fair enough. We'll so that positive. Le- let's get into your Richard's brain. Let's dissect. Let's go where no one wants to go. Yeah. Okay? No, not even I want to go there. Now, let's do it for a second and be like, Rich, spoiler-free review. Okay? Mm-hmm. Spoiler-free, what are your thoughts on The Lies of Lock, Lamora? I think
2: The Lies of Lock, Lamora is quintessential modern fantasy storytelling. And it. I think it's a must-read if you're into modern fantasy. It's... It's a heist book. It's also a something else that I don't want to get into because then it's kind of spoilers. But the banter, the love the characters have for each other, the the dynamics between them, the world building, the interesting view of being the small guy in a large magical
1: world. It's all fantastic to read. I really enjoyed the book. You like the fact that this protagonist isn't your typical hero chosen one. With oh, a yeah. bunch of powers. It's... Ly- Locke Lamora is a I You're thief. You're not NPC
2: level, but you're like one degree removed yeah. of
1: a fantasy NPC. Got it. Got you know what it. I mean? That's what you mean. That's yeah. what you mean. You're a tertiary character in this huge world. Exactly. exactly. So I have a little blurb here to to try to convince people out there to read Locke Lamora. Lock you want me to say that real quick? The thing I have prepped, I feel... That I feel, you wrote? I wrote this, yeah. 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 If you wrote it, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Here's my pitch, okay? Yeah. Lies of Lamora, this is what it's about. Lock Lamora's parents are dead. And in the mysterious island city of Camor, which much resembles a medieval Venice, things aren't so lawful and pretty. This man called the Thief Maker takes in orphan children just like our protagonist, Locke Lamora, and provides these orphans food and roofs over their head. But in return, these kids must go around the city stealing and thieving in order to bring in a profit for our Thief Maker. The only problem this Locke Lamora kid is too good at stealing in a heist book. Imagine that. And he's too good at stealing and coming up with schemes, which is causing our thief maker to have one too many problems. So the thief maker decides to sell him off so he can be somebody else's nuisance. And the man he sells Locke Lamora to sees this kid's potential and decides to take him under his wing and train him to be the best thief the world's ever known. That's a good pitch.
2: A lot of info in there. I don't know about you, but for the guy who's crazy about spoilers, a lot of details.
1: That's the that's the prologue. <laughs> that's the that's the prologue. What if someone didn't want you to spoil the prologue or the first sentence? Our first lines video <laughs> was spoilers. <laughs> so that that is what Lachlan Moore is about. You said it exactly right. With this is your quintessential even heist. If you're looking mm-hmm. for a fantasy heist, Lachlan Moore is going to be everywhere. It has over two hundred thousand reviews on Goodreads. That's reviews. I don't even think I think it has more ratings than that. It just yeah. has a lot, or it might be two hundred thousand ratings. A ton of people have read this book. It's, when you're looking at the fantasy sphere, it's Mistborn as a heist mm-hmm. book, Lach Lamora, but what Lach Lamora does, that second thing you don't want to spoil yet, is it's a heist book with another story element slash trope slash archetype that comes in later, that does that really well, so it weaves that in. Would you say that Lies of Locke Lamora is better than Thousand Deaths of Art or Ben? <laughs> No one says Arthur Ben. <laughs> oh my god. If you guys didn't see our review of Arter Ben, don't read it. Sorry to the author. Love, he's probably a great guy. I'd want to have a beer. Oh, oh maybe a water. He's not beer worth. <laughs> <laughs> so no, but uh, in all honesty, lies a lot of the heist book. I don't be, yeah, I just mean when it comes to heist book, there's not a ton you can think about. in the fantasy genre, Mistborn and this come up all the time. Basically. And I wanted to ask you, though. Oh, ask me away. I'm ready
2: to be asked. What did our patrons think about this book when we actually had this as our book club book of the month? If you're interested in joining our Patreon and joining our book club, go ahead, click the link down below, and it's a bunch of fun. Get exclusive access to our
1: Discord. It's a ton of fun. Hell yeah. Everybody was 100% success rate where people really either liked it or loved it. Where we had Coop, one of our patrons said, it's one of the easiest books to recommend because you, people read it and just go, yep, good book to great book. We had Haffrican and Nick um, Inace. They all enjoyed the world building, the charming characters. Teapot, she said she, she read this book when she was 17. and It was one of her first books, and it was her favorite book. She's read a hun- hundreds of books since then. I'm like, man, does it still hold up? She went back to reread Lies of and it held up. So that's all wow. great to hear. We had uh, we, Everybody was saying it. Sorry I didn't mention you, but there was a lot of people on the call, and everybody really liked it. It mm-hmm. was very, very positive. And this book actually has a 4.3 on Goodreads. Can that's a believe great that? score on Goodreads. It's a great score. Especially for that high amount
2: of ratings that are on there.
1: More importantly, what is your score, Richard? What's your Rambler rating My
2: for the My
1: official Rambler rating is an
2: 8.15 out of 10. That's a great score. It's a great score. Very good score. I think anything above an 8 is a mandatory read.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I gave it... Oh, oh, I didn't pass your test, but I gave it a 7.8. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it a 7.8. A still good score. Real a good, real, good score. real good score. real good score, and I think we're both around the same area of saying, mm-hmm. recommend. Yep. Not Go just, ahead and read it. And if you don't want to listen to us, not just our patrons that read this, but there are some very big authors and other booktubers that had a few words to say about the lies of Locke Lamora. Go ahead and share. Including Patrick Russells, including Pierce Brown, Mark mm-hmm. Lawrence, and Patrick Leo, fellow booktuber. I always love reading his reviews. He has great good reads reviews. Oh, when it comes to booktuber
2: experts, like if I'm going like there are booktubers that are entertaining, yep. have maybe thoughtful discussions on like something more niche. If I'm looking for expert on fantasy sci-fi
1: books oh. leo leo leo
2: 100 highly recommend expert yeah you listen to us for just weird vibes that's why like you don't come to us as experts in the fantasy genre
1: no we're noise when they're doing something yeah it's just like
2: they go to leo if like i need to know objective opinions i need to like analyze this and have a wide breadth. I want to go to the expert, the PhD. Yeah. He, he's you the top to, of the food chain. Here's, we are your TA. We're, we're your teacher's
1: assistant. Yeah. And he's your professor. That's yeah, he's the it, principal. Come on. He's the superintendent. Well, are we pandering <laughs> enough to get him on the pod? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really see you going for it. <laughs> well, this is what Petrick says. Mm-hmm. He says, The Lies of Locke Lamora, the first book in the Gentleman Bastards series, has become one of the best debut novels I've ever read. He said it. Yeah, out of he his. He said mouth. it, and that means it's true. And then Patrick Rufus, notorious author of the Kinko Chronicles, <laughs> in his review, he actually when when he published the name of the wind, I think that was in like twenty ten. Is think that right? So. so this book, The Lies Lockmore, came out before then, and Patrick Rufus was saying, when his book was published, everybody was calling him the new Scott Lynch, was saying, hey, he's. Getting a ton of comparisons to Scott Lynch and Eliza Loch Lamora. And in, in Patrick, Patrick's review, he went good Goodreads and said this and said, I knew it was a flattering comparison, but at the time I was kind of irked by it. I remember thinking, why do I have to be the next Scott Lynch? Why can't I just be the first Patrick Rufus? I'll probably be a lot better than, better than that. I've got way more experience at it, if nothing else. And he's saying this in his review. And then he went to read the book. And after reading it once, he read it, digested it, thought it was clever and this and that. And then he decided, you know what, I'm going to, years later, I'm going to reread the book. I read the first time I liked it. I'm going to reread it again. And in his own words, Ruffus says, I was absolutely fucking stunned by how good it is. The construction of it, the language, the world, the cleverness, the wit. There is nothing I don't like about this book. Seriously. Okay, fine. One tiny, tiny quibble. Even so, do you know how rare that is for me to say that right now? In the full flush of the second reading, I think *Lies* is probably in my top ten favorite books ever. Maybe top five. This is from Patrick Rufus, and he's he says there are three things that this book specifically does better than *Name of the Wind*. Oh, three things specifically. I can think of more than 3.
2: <laughs> name one, Rich, you name it then I'll say what Pat- Patrick Wolfe says. World building. Ooh. I think the characters by far are way more interesting. Scott Lynch is. They're more charming and interesting. They change and grow. It's nice. Um, let's see here. Honestly, that's a big plot. Plot is actually entertaining and
1: fun. If you can't tell, uh, Rich doesn't like name of the wind. I'm a big fan of name. Bit of a, of a biased party. party. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Ruffus himself says one: the beginning of this book, the first fifty pages especially, hook you way more and are way more interesting than and stronger opener than his is. Number two, he says the title is way better than his book is. Yeah, that's definitely true. And number three, he says the cussing is way better than In *Name of the Wind*.
2: I actually disagree with uh, Patrick Ruffus on this first point. Oh, I of think the, beginning. *The Name of the Wind* has a better hook. Better, oh, really? It, like I was. Down for the beginning part of Name of the Wind. I was
1: hooked in. So you can't even agree with him when he's being humble? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So it's he, the rest of the book I didn't like. Basically, he now is praising, going, I'm glad to be compared to Scott Lynch. So it's a nice little come full circle. He's not just Patrick Ruffus, but also Mark Lawrence says every fantasy reader should read this. Yep. And by the way, with that Patrick Ruffus review, it's longer than what I said. I didn't read in between the lines. It's a much longer review. You want to hear what Pierce Brown said? Just to show you their prose difference. This is Pierce Brown's very apt, concise review, okay? Mm -hmm. Pierce Brown says, It's not often I read a book that makes me forget I'm a writer too. This one succeeded madly. It stole hours of sleep. It wrapped me in a cozy myth. It gave me the blessing of feeling like a kid again, snuggled up with a book, wondering how the hell 10 p.m. became 4 a.m. Find, buy, consume." He's definitely a lot more succinct. He is. And just him writing that review just makes you go, I love your prose, Pierce. Ah, I just love the review, how it was worded. Just, me. Ah, amazing. Amazing. Dude, why, why, why are
2: you giving me that look? What's, what's that look for? I'm just saying, like, all of the uh, Tad Williams stands out there, like, yeah, you know, Pierce Brown's prose is not
1: that good. <laughs> not detailed enough. Yeah. Want to get into the categories? I think we should get into categories. Spoiler warning for the lives of Locke Lamore. This is your chance to click off the video. Mm-hmm. Rich, you want to give any other warning? Like, what are you gonna say after this? Why? Should, why, why else should people click off other than just they don't want mark. to watch the video anymore? Yeah, that too. No, no that's also it. Okay, go read the book. Yeah. At this point, spoilers. Spoiler time. Ready? Yep. Emotional impacts. Would you give it out of ten? Let's talk this book. I gave it an eight out of ten. Great. I gave it a seven out of ten a good score. And now what the big things for the emotional impact. Mm-hmm. First thing, what what do you think the message of the story was? I think it, there was kind of
2: two two big ones that I kind of picked up on. Okay. First was the loyalty and friendship versus power and money. Go on that. Okay. Uh so throughout this story, we see kind of two sides of the so the gray king who amasses power and amasses a ton of money to be able to get what he wants and kind of has that feeling, but he goes instead of a loyal partner and friend, he uses money and influence to get the ma- magi, the magi to Farms help magi. him. Yeah, which doesn't work for him out okay well in the end. Versus, you know, Locke, Lamor and Jean are. Friends, the loyalty, that overcomes. And Locke is able to truly depend on Gene when the push comes to shove. And then you go throughout the rest of the story. I think that there's several other examples with the nobility and how their loyalty ultimately triumphs in the end. Mm -hmm. Second one is honesty is a tool just like lies. And at the end of this book... The last tool in Locke's tool belt is the honest truth. And he's, he's all used up out of lies. The lies are out. So he has to use honesty. And it works. Except for that one little thing he keeps secret to pay off his debts. Yep. That's, little, very, that,
1: that's the thing. The best lie is the one that's hidden with truth. What do you think? That, is that what the book is saying about lies? Do you think that the book's making a stance on this lying good? Is there a time to lie? Is lying because people in the real life have these moral qualms about never lie, or you can have white lies, or what's a lie that goes too far? What do you think the distinction is made in Lies Like the moral? I don't think it takes a stance on
2: it. It's it's a part of this world, and mm-hmm. but a lot of it is not focused on whether lies are good or bad. That's how it's I just took it. What too. you're doing with it? What are your actions? What what are your intentions? Right. That the lie itself is not morally
1: bad, or good yeah part of it i think the what the lying did for Locke, and maybe what it did for his character it got him to be a bit too prideful but too cocky and confident at times yeah so what i think at the end there that honesty how he just says, say hey here's what's going on i'm being honest there's no there's no lie here other than that one small little mm-hmm. lie that he kind of left there that revealing of honesty showed their lie i think it's saying this about lies just to a, a certain extent lies can go too far to where you fall into, uh, if if he didn't lie so much and get too prideful about it, what lies do to you and your psyche, it led to his friends dying. It led to his pride caused Bug to die, Kylo, Kylo and Galdo. And I don't think it's saying like, hey, stop lying, because it's it's not taking that kind of stance. That wasn't the message at the end. Mm-hmm. But I think it's trying to show a balance of, there's a reason you're a gentleman bastard. There's a way to have a moral code without following the law. Well, you're right on that because
2: for this book, Locke struggles, I think a little bit, so his arrogance in the scheme, so he values the game he yeah. value money is a tool to him it's not that he particularly values money, but he values that he got a lot of money, they take pride in their hideout and their grand riches and all their things that
1: they're able to do. All the characters it. don't even know what to do with the money. They all yeah, trust they, each other. Like, what do we spend it on? Which, not like you at all. No. <laughs> you, you. you know what you want to spend your money on. I, I have lots
2: of things I want to they're,
1: spend Behind on. the camera, there's a bunch of crap we don't It's just, why?
2: Don't we, need. We use it all. What we is that? We use all of the tech behind this podcast. Be- because you made it so that we had to. Look, we thought, hey, do we use OBS? Oh no, my computer's not good enough to do nah. it. Do we upgrade the computer? <laughs> Whatever. That's that's another conversation. Beside the point. Locke's arrogance and power trip gets his friends killed. The yeah. fact that he is valuing the game over his friends. Uh, it, like, I think you can make that argument. He does love his friends, but he puts his friends at risk unnecessarily so sometimes. Oh yeah. For the sake of of the heist, the game, mm-hmm. and that gets him killed. And so at the end, like he does have to pay like the cost of throwing away all that money. And that's yeah. the lesson of yep. that his obsession with the game, his obsession with money,
1: got his friends killed. So he has to throw that away as penance. And then this book, when you're, when you're mentioning this, his friends and that advantage he has were friendship versus the power of the Grey King. Yeah. That theme of power and, and... what Would you say the other one was power and money?
2: Yeah, so, so the, loyalty
1: the, the, and friendship versus, versus power and money. Okay, so loyalty and friendship versus power and money. How do you think that ties into where, what, what this lies a lot more the tone? The tone of the world, the tone of everything. The world is grim. The
2: world operates on power and money. Yeah. Locke and his friends have a sense of loyalty and friendship and real love between them. And that's why following them is more enjoyable and not as grim a tone. Mm. But to give a parallel example, yeah. where if the parallels between the Grey King and Locke, they're, they're the two sides, then you have Jean, which is Locke's right hand, and then you have the Magi, the Grey King's right hand, yeah. for this story. And when it comes down to it, when Locke needs Gene, Jean, after Gene's beaten up, he is brutalized. He comes crawling in and he. Anything he could do, he s- tries to save Locke, even though he's broken and battered. Take the Magi. When he's beaten and let go, ultimately, he is let go, but he's beaten, brutalized, all these things. He doesn't go crawling back to the Grey King to help him or warn him or do anything. He just leaves and abandons him now that money and the tides of change have not are not with him. Right. You run oh, so
1: there's loyalty that gene that is. Loyalty. Yeah.
2: The loyalty of Jean saves Locke in the end. Yeah. And ultimately all the Grey King's money was not able to keep the Magi with him. Right. Right. You could learn something from that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I don't have money to give you. <laughs> I, I, that, that's a lesson of necessity. If I had a, if I could replace my friendship with you with money, I'd do it. I don't have the money to replace our friendship. I know you would. That's why I said it. <laughs> okay. Once I get the money, you're telling me
1: I shouldn't replace the friendship with money. I just know money's looming over this relationship. And I just know the second, like if we get a sponsor reaches out Mm. like Libro.fm that you love and they're like, they
2: haven't reached out. I have been, that's the the biggest one. Plugging them every video. Free plugs to them. I love their thing. And I, they, they should reach out. They should sponsor us. Just use them anyways. They're great. Yeah. (laughs) Just use like the best thing. Screw DRM. Screw all the other companies that are trying to keep you on their own platform and like control what you own. Libro.fm actually gives you your thing. That's simple. I, when, I, when
1: you buy a thing, you then own the thing. So Lovely. You know what's going to be awful for just our videos in general? Huh. Is every video we're going to have to not just mention Patreon, also yeah. mention Libro.fm for free, and then also mention the merch that's coming out. And then also the actual sponsorship we get, we're gonna t- we're we're gonna turn into a, a podcast light. Like you get a podcast every now and then in between the ads. <laughs> <laughs> like there's we talk in between some big ad rules Is what's going fair, on? To be fair,
2: that's just YouTube in general. Now yeah. it's just chock full of. Not only do you have YouTube's ads, then you have the ads within the ads and the videos and the. Ugh. Sorry.
1: I'm sorry I, that we participated. I hope YouTube times this with like an ad right before this. We're cuts. Like, you oh, know, good. Yes. I, that'll be great. Whatever YouTube YouTube gods do it. Well, let's go to uh, characters. Ready? Okay. What What'd did you, you give? Oh, you're asking me? I'm asking you this time. What did you give it? Uh, thanks, Rich. I gave it a seven out of ten. Seven out of
2: ten. Yes. Same as it's emotional cool.
1: impact. Yep. I gave it a seven point seven five out of ten. There you go. Now, do you want to? Oh, we obviously should talk Locke first. Sure. Locke Lamora and why our ratings are seem to be good not excellent. Mm. I'm curious about you because I thought this would be a disagreement. I thought you would like the characters a lot more when I finished the book. I thought you would go, oh, these are really great characters. And I thought I'd be more the odd one out. Mm. Because I heard, this is what I heard beforehand, that, you know, Frodo and Sam, forget them. You've got Locke and Jean. You've got these excellent fellowship. And that's what the core of the book is. The The pole of this book are the characters. And not, they are not bad at, at all. They're very good and confident. But why didn't you give it higher first? And what, what kept it from going higher? And was Locke a part of that? Locke is not a significant
2: part of a lower score. Okay. It's everything else. Okay. However, when you're talking about the, like, forget um, forget and Salmon, Sam. Sam and Frodo, Yeah. Locke and Gene, that whole brother, uh, brotherhood and, like, great bond. Yeah mostly comes into the second book i think like oh second book is the lock and gene story it's great and it really tests their friendship and the push and pull and you really see them shine is the second book better than the first i don't know it's pretty equal to me it's close i think i would lean the first book is better okay but the second book is very, very good. I that, don't want to give any more spoilers okay. on
1: that. Let, let's zone in on Locke then and his character. Then mm-hmm. we can go on what maybe what characters didn't do it as much for you. Because what I have for Locke Lamora, we can agree, he's quick witted, clever, but doesn't play every role, which is extremely important. Where yes. where you have your protagonist character, where I think one of our issues with Arthur Bed, for example, was he seemed to play multiple roles. Uh, No, he didn't. But yes, he did. (laughs) He didn't play every role, but he played a A, lot, a lot of roles. And that's where you see some bad, bad movies come into play. And bad books is where your your protagonist doesn't need their fellowship because they could do everything. Mm -hmm. Lamora is extremely smart and witty, but he doesn't play every role. And he actually, the the thing I loved about Locke's character Mm -hmm. is he actually was smart. Like, think of some of these ruses and scenes, and where Scott Lich really impresses me with the things he's able to come up with is, uh, here's one scene, for example, where, where Loc Lamora is giving Kappa Barsavi when he collects money from all of his, what are they called, the Kappa and Pe- Pesos. The, this, you have the Kappa and you have the pezon The pezon Do I have that right? Sure. So the, the pezon has to pay the Kappa and he will purposely give the Kappa a less money certain weeks. He'll give less money, which seems counterintuitive, but Kava Barsavi goes, Locke Lamora, I know I can always trust you because everybody else, when they go and make more money, they always give me the same amount every week because when they make you know, when they make high amounts, if they're making a bunch of crowns, they'll still give me the same and they'll jip me out of that money. But you, Locke, I know you're honest because you'll give me less money. And when you give me less money, I know when you give me more money, you're being honest. Like that whole, <laughs> it, like it makes sense. It's just the yeah. way that Locke, does the counter... Oh, what is it? It, Not psychology. The counterintuitive word I'm looking for.
2: Yeah. The main thing is all the other gangs... Reverse psychology. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. 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 But all the other gangs play pretty obvious. They're not... Yeah. Yeah. When the... When the Kappa... You know... Kappa... Barsavi. Barsavi. He sees them doing a big scheme. Like, hey, that gang over there did a -a 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 big heist. That They... They pulled a big a big job, mm-hmm. and then he gets the exact same amount. It's, like, obvious. Right. Where Locke, all of his schemes are really low-key. They're not extravagant, so they're not popping up on the radar. And he's socially aware of how his
1: actions are viewed. And so he gives proper...
2: Well, the then he, he does have
1: that big, those big schemes where it comes to Don Salvari. Yeah, the, but the Don. that's not advertised. That's but the, no, it's, that's the key. it's under the... They're not, they don't say anything because they're embarrassed to. And what I liked about that is he didn't just go for the normal ruse of getting the Don. And he, that whole scene we'll talk about in plot, but I thought the really intelligent thing that where you get into Locke's character is he goes the extra step of pretending to be the guards or pretending to be warning the Don about Locke Lamora's scheme. Like, hey, Locke Lamora is not Master Faye right? He's, he's a fraud. So Locke Lamora in another disguise is saying my the other disguise he's in is a liar, and that's actually Locke Lamora, so that they can get more money out of that. I can't even explain it right, but if people have read the book, they know like, it's, oh, yeah. no, it's that, he knows that it's- layer deep. <laughs> <laughs> to extract every dollar. Yeah. Much like we do to our patrons. <laughs> just, <laughs> like, Locke <laughs> Lamora is a role model to be followed. So, to I salute him for <laughs> every dollar they're worth. Oh my goodness. It's so. wonderful. Like, he's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, last thing that I'll let you talk about Locke, I just had mm-hmm. this last thing to say about his, the description of his character. This is how he's described when he's introduced in the book and what I really like with his mm-hmm. descriptions and how they interline with the personality of the character. This is what mm-hmm. he says. Locke was a medium man in every respect. Medium height, medium build, medium dark hair, cropped short above a face that was neither handsome nor memorable. He looked like a proper Theron, though perhaps a bit less olive and roadie than Jean or or Bug. In another light, he may have passed for a very tan Vadron. His bright gray eyes alone had any sense of distinction. He was a man the gods might have shaped deliberately to be overlooked. So that description that's set for you go, he's the perfect thief. Yeah. Your NPC. Yeah. <laughs> Your tertiary character, you look by, much like you, Rich. People look by, never remember you. Just glance nah, by. See, when they glance by
2: me, they the, see the, the reflection. Sh- the shine the- off <laughs> my head gets in their eye. Yeah. The beacon.
1: It's like, of Gondor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the lights have called. Come to Gondor's aid. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> okay, so Lochlamore, what do you think about that respect? Sorry, I rambled a bit. No, he's
2: hit all the. I agree with you completely on all that. Really? The things that want talked about yeah. it would be Locke's wants flaws uh, like, and wants flaws and needs. Okay, so let's talk about his flaws. Sure, yeah. his flaws. I think surface level, pretty obvious is he's arrogant and very stubborn,
1: to the point he gets his friends killed because of it. He, he likes the game so much he gets this pride from it, and even at first I noticed some of the flaws were well, why he was sold in the first place by the thief maker. He was mm-hmm. a bit reckless. Well, Reckless, and given
2: several opportunities of like, you're doing well, like, what do I have to give you yeah. to just stop? Right, like, right, right. They, it's not a, he's desperate in need and he's doing these things for some other reason. He just really likes doing it and he likes doing it just to prove that he's
1: better. Uh, imagine, look, um, I don't mean this as a joke, but imagine honestly if an alcoholic was addicted to stealing instead. Yeah, the, the, I think there's an actual term for that. Kleptomaniac. Kleptomaniac. You got it. Yeah. So imagine being a, addicted to the game itself. That's what he, so that's his flaw. Yeah. And so now why does he want, is he going for the
2: thrill? Is it for the pride aspect of it? And what he needs is temperance. That's what he needs. Yeah. And probably a bit more honesty in there, but that's later. But you're right. There's yeah. several moments in the story where, you know he loves his friends and family, his new found family. They there is a love there, but sometimes you just kind of have to question: Does he love the game
1: mm. more than he loves his friends? I think he realizes that too late, where after yeah. his friends die, like n- none of this is worth Bug Cal- Calo and Galdo dying. Mm-hmm. That's where it comes. So, makes perfect sense as a character, and. Do you think that... now We can actually talk about it now, but we'll touch more on plots. But that revenge aspect of the story is where he starts to move his character. That's where the arc begins to complete. Yeah, because it's no longer
2: a game. Right. And it's very much a revenge survival story. Mm. And in that case, pride has... Because in the game, in all of the ruses the end goal is not just money, it's the pride of a job well done and that satisfaction. Right. Where now, with revenge, that's not the end result. That's not the end goal, is pride and a job well done. It's, no, he needs to go on the ground, and we need to win. And in that case, honesty was a great tool. Honesty doesn't work in a ruse, because it would spoil the the pride. Excitement. Yeah, Yeah, we're... You basically let someone else win, take the yeah. like you ask for help. That's then he doesn't win, right? In this one, so it, it's a good change. That's why it's a this is a really good book on its own. Yes, Because he has a lesson to learn, right? But let's get into some of the other characters. Well, The fellowship
1: first. Oh, the, the fellowship. The okay, yeah. Let's get into those characters. So you mm-hmm. have Bug, Calo, and I always f- flip where the D is. It's Calo and Galdo, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's you got your fellowship. What do you think about them? That's where I'm not giving like a 9 out of 10. I liked
2: them. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed them quite a bit, but not absolutely felt. So when Bug, Cal, uh, Cal, Caldo, Caldo die, hmm. yeah, I'm not bawling my eyes out over their death. I'm sad because it's a loss for Locke and Gene. Not necessarily sad that Bug is dead. Would I'm you not say emotionally attached to them.
1: Would you say it's accurate? This is what I feel. I like the idea of them yeah I like the idea of them and I like that Gene you know Gene is the muscles and he's very loyal and I like the flashbacks we get where Gene and, and Lachlan initially and had that little their butting heads and they have their they make up back when the chains the eyeless priest is with them and still alive I like those scenes and moments and hey they have their chant together they, they look great as a unit much like I'd say no spoilers this is not spoilers for the book at all but Stormlight this is very early on but th- there's the team Bridge 4 Mm-hmm. And Bridge 4, I like the idea of Bridge 4, and that develops as the book and so forth further on. But similarly, of you could, I like the idea of the unit, the gentleman yeah. bastards, at well, least with they this They have one. moments that
2: shine. Yes, yes, at, yes.
1: Both in action,
2: where Locke knows his team, he knows his friends, and he's able to utilize them properly to their strengths. Yep. Awesome. Also, the camaraderie when they're together. And you see it at, at on the... Like Their banter back and forth implies a great history. Yep. All the stuff there. But all, all of that said, I just didn't emotionally connect with those characters the same way I did Locke
1: and Gene. I loved um, Bug's ending, like his final lines, and it was, t- it was touching. Of course, not bawling your eyes out. I think one of the things I, w- I was a little confused about with the character reaction was K- um, Kahlo and Galda, when they died, more I realized Locklemore didn't see it. He found their dead bodies, but he, he seemed to grieve Bug's death a lot more than he grieved the brother's death, which yes, he saw Bug die before him and there is that emphasis on it, but the brothers that he's been with since he was a child, I felt like it was, these two brothers were a big part of the story and they were a big part of the Gentleman Bastards. I, for some reason, when I remember, I'm recalling reading and just going, oh, there wasn't, like Locke didn't super think that, uh, grieve them a ton. I just had that feeling. Mm. Did you do you think now here's me was it intentional maybe
2: of was it an element of pride of the reason why Locke was sad about or more uh, more upset about bug's death is that bug was like his the trainee. responsibility yeah. trainee that it looked poorly on him right. where Galdo like they were more established they're they're their own men. And the fact that Bug
1: said, like, that's Locke's fault. That makes sense. And also to the reader, we're, see, we're supposed to emotionally connect with Bug more because we see him die before our eyes. Mm-hmm. So there's supposed to be more on edge there. I can see that being the case for sure. Um, so it, it confused me a bit with the fellowship and just sure. going, this was a band of brothers. Like, you know, when, when, you're, when your best bud dies and it's all over, I, I bet you'll grieve me one day. Unless I kill you first, <laughs> defense. What oh, was? Oh, what kind of look was that? I was just thinking about it, you know, just pondering, <laughs> imagining, smiling, just fantasizing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, the fellowship. I don't know how to put it more in words. And like you, it seems like we're both having a trouble explaining why it just wasn't amazing. I, I bet, like you said, Gene and. His relationship get more way more developed in book two, but other than it's not that nothing it maybe to put it this way it's not that something was wrong; it's just there wasn't something exemplary. I think I have it narrow it down
2: where you really fall in love with a character is kind of the emotional roller coaster journey is where you see the characters butting heads and like at their throats and then become best friends. That's when you're just so involved in their relationship. With Callow and uh, you'll have to. Galdo. Have to, Galdo, that you kind of see them, and for the most part, them and Locke are just kind of chill.
0: Mm. They're
2: fine. Like you start at the high, and then they die, and it's like you find out in flashbacks that they are. You find out in flashbacks, but it's not. And even in those flashbacks, I would say that's not. I get you. They're not they don't have a bunch of so conflict. So maybe
1: there's missing that conflict, missing that tension that would have paid off much more.
2: Yeah, when oh, when like characters I, become yeah. friends and they be, you see them go from either strangers to great friends or enemies to great friends, that relationship is more meaningful to the reader.
1: Versus For example, I'm going to bleep yeah. these two out, but and then the other one so I believe yes. I those out, but those two examples is exactly what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why you probably feel more for Gene as well is yeah. you get a bit more of their conflict in the beginning, in this, especially the flashbacks. The flashbacks more focus on their mm-hmm. butting heads anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So for the fellowship, good. Yeah. The, the idea of them is great. Then how about the villains? I guess we could categorize three slash antagonist slash villains here. Mm-hmm. Kappa Barsavi, The Bonds Mage, and the Great King. I want to talk about the Bonds Mage first and something sure. something that I think we both enjoyed about the Bonds Mage and why you think this is a really cool, unique fantasy book, is the Bonds Mage, part of the world building we could talk about, is just this oppressive magic.
2: Yeah, so as far as characters go, there's not much to him other than just oppressive terror. Like there's no hope. If, mm-hmm. if the magic gets a hold of you regular people are screwed right like maybe like even if you kill them maybe maybe you're able to trick one of them and kill them and if you do that all of the magician all the magic people are gonna come out and kill you like no hope <laughs> It's yeah. it's a hopeless endeavor so i enjoyed that quite a bit so I think most of him is in that
1: world building. Thing. We'll talk. About okay, that we'll more. talk about it later. Because then, what about Kappa Barsavi and the Gray King? Which one stood out to you more? Did you think they were extraordinary villains? Did you think there was something missing?
2: They were. It's almost like one. All the best parts of a villain split into two people. Oh, you get what I mean. Oh, Kappa Barsavi had the suave, had the character, had just like the personal connection to our our hero. And then the Grey King had the mystery, the um ambiance, just the fear factor, the the intimidation.
1: Imagine you know if I mean yeah, imagine if was as fear fearful of Kava Barsavi as you were the Grey King. Mm-hmm. Part of that, maybe part of the tension, the conflict you're talking about, the fellowship, is also there for Barsavi, where Kava Barsavi likes Locke. Yeah on his team, like, he work, and pay, pays on. I'm Luke cool is
2: mostly, the uh, lock is mostly neutral with him, like mm-hmm. generally positive, but also just, he's lying to him, but he's not sure. Yeah, Versus, but he's not super friendly. He's not friends with him. He doesn't really care. just like, he cares about his family. Oh, sure thing. Yeah. Versus the gray King. You see the, you see him become the enemy in that book. And I don't know for, so the great King is Locke's enemy for the Gray King. Locke is an obstacle yeah. and an annoyance for the most part, but
1: not particularly his enemy. I, one issue I had with the Gray King maybe mm-hmm. is that the mystery behind a monster, the mystery behind the villain um, we talk about this with horror films. Of it's not as scary, and the the idea of the monster is more scary than the monster itself. So for for the Gray King, this mystery of who he was and this badass who had this how much money to get the bonds mage, I think the reveal of who he was and how he got the money and what kind of guy it was like a revenge story for the Grey King, really humanized him to a point, not not empathize didn't make me think like he's in the right. It humanized him to a point where he no longer was this giant menacing Grey King. It was a beatable human for Lock Lamora. And so... Sure. Do you feel, do you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Add on top of that, that the ending fight,
2: yeah. the fact that Locke, it... The... The actual physical fight with the Grey King. I get you're kind of supposed to have that, but Locke being, you know, the string being that he is, having any sort of fight, even though the fight was mostly him just delaying him and trying to trick him. Yeah. Felt a little off that he shouldn't even try to have a -a fist-a-cuff fight with the Grey King. Right. Seems off to me.
1: Right, yeah, and in and plot, I think in plot, the end, we'll, we'll get that in plot, but sure. with, with the characters for the positive, I think Locke's a very solid protagonist. Yep. Maybe we had some, just like the idea of The Fellowship, one more negative point. They're not bad villains, they were just villains that held their place and propelled the plot, and that's all good. Mm-hmm. My favorite characters, and this is Robin from the Patreon, shout out Robin, I agree totally with her on this. My two favorite characters are the Thief Maker and the Eyeless Priest. The Eyeless Priest is my favorite character. I, I even mean more than Locke. Oh. I mean that. Of Locke's a good character and all, but the, the two characters are... You go on first. Why is the Eyeless Priest... Is he your favorite over Locke? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there' something about their dialogue, their tone they bring to the world and that underground, they really give you that gentleman bastard feel of this immor- immorality but at the same time a code and or, a a oh go ahead. It's go. frequently
2: done in fantasy of like the criminal's code, like mm-hmm. the the you know, honor among thieves and all. Mm-hmm. And it's normally play as a joker and it's not handled properly. This one, it actually is true. Like, there is a code, and they follow it religiously, and they believe in it, and there is a type of honor to
1: it. Yeah. I find it really interesting. And the fact that the eyeless priest is... The training he gives to Locke and all these kids, yes, he's doing... He's a thief, and yes, he's lying to people, he's doing all this, but it's kind of that... Not anti-hero. He's not really a hero of the story either. The gray character is that the right term whatever the right term is yeah he's in the middle where you you watch a scene to just go oh you know what he's still giving the kids a home and he's he's teaching them life yes he's teaching them how to steal that's not good but
0: but also a lot of life lessons (laughs) and just like they have a better education
1: Than a lot of the nobles. Yeah. It, better than New Mexico, where you're from. <laughs> you complain to me all the time hey, about your education as a kid. So. Thank
2: God. Hey, thank God we're not Mississippi. <laughs> that's that's the only thing.
1: Hey, you're number 49. You'll get there. You'll...
2: Sometimes 48. Hey, who do you, what other state
1: do you beat occasionally? Is it
2: Louisiana? Maybe. Sometimes Louisiana's low. But hey. All we know, the
1: Islas Priest, he's at least yeah. right above
2: there. <laughs> he's, he's above he's, there. He's giving them a solid, better education than New Mexico.
1: And yeah. something about it makes it somewhat acceptable. Because when the suspension of disbelief in this world, again, don't want to get too into it. But Nazca, the kid character, when she's a kid and Locke first sees her, is drinking alcohol at like eight, nine years old. Which, again, real world, yes, it's wrong. But when you're put in the tone of this world and you realize what the what the society like is what the society is like and what's acceptable. It makes what the eyeless priest is doing more acceptable compared to what the gray King's doing or it's, it's all the perspective is what makes the eyeless priest so good. Yes. In, in a
2: world that this one where I, the world that we're placed in values life as very, very cheap. Yeah. Life is cheap. It's grim people don't, uh, that's, honestly, that's the best way to put it. And the eyeless priest does value their lives, values them as people and treats them well. The eyeless priest. Comparative to everyone
1: else. Exactly. Yeah. And the eyeless priest could be a villain in another book. Sure. If if he was the worst in society and it was just, you know, everyone's chilling have a good time. There's this priest who's lying to people to siphon money, to get sympathy from everybody and teaching these kids how to steal. That could be a, a bad character, but in comparison, if we learned anything from books like Mort, perspective. (laughs) Perspective matters more than the reality of the actual thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the best of the worst, you're still the best. Well, even think about when he,
2: as far as the money goes, like he's having his kids steal. In many ways, it seems more just, it's more focused on the religion than the money aspect of it. So what does he do with all this money? He turns around and invests in them again. And Gives them opportunities, and do- what is he spending the money on? He dresses poorly. He lives this role, yeah, as the eyeless priest. He's not like being gluttonous with mm. his money. He's not buying expensive things for his. Yeah. life. When he buys expensive things, he's sharing with them. Like when he has a very nice bottle of wine, and everything he shares it with
1: all of them. It's not a. He doesn't have. He's not uber selfish. He's yeah. It, there's something about him. There's it, something about it's it. It's not like he's and,
2: having them all steal this money so exactly. he can
1: go on some resort or buy some big boat or whatever. His actions speak for himself. Yeah. Because that's, what, that's the great thing about him and the thief Maker in a lot of this dialogue. Again, I'm getting too far ahead of myself. But with the dialogue and how their actions tell you who they are, their actions show you who they are, they'll talk the talk, they'll kind of push the kid. They'll say some lines that you know they don't mean. Mm, or they'll yeah. be they'll be brutal with the kids. I, I mean, for both the Thief Maker and I was well, Thief Maker is more of a bad guy, but yeah, but, he's but, yeah, closer to the actual bad yeah, guy. I, I just mean in the sense that they the way they talk to the kids, and you're set up in this world, so you, you know that's the expectation of how people talk, and especially it's a thief it's a, it's a thief world. The way that he talks to the kids and says some things that uh, it's it's almost like the a father playing with a son and teaching him ba- teaching baseball. Or a, a, teaching them boundaries. Yeah. Teaching them boundaries. So playing baseball or playing a play. Let's say you're playing a board game. As a kid. This is what my dad did when I was a kid. He would, he taught me chess at the age of three and I, he would beat me 10 out of 11 games. But that 11th game, he would let me win once just, just so he keep my interest. And then I'd be like, Oh, I, I just beat my dad. Then he would be like, all right, he's getting too, too prideful. Let me beat him 50 times. <laughs> and then I start crying. He'd be like, more you need to learn the lesson so what the Islas <laughs> Priest seems to be doing is t- pushing the boundaries of these kids saying some things but letting them also be free agents of their own it's just it's a it's a really weird relationship but I think Locke says it best he says something about I don't know how he ended up with these insane scary delightful people something like that mm. and that's the best way to put
2: it yeah I, I'm agree with it. I love their characters it- Every time the eyeless priest is on the page, I'm having a fantastic time. Yeah, his his dialogue. So I cool. do think I have to put Locke over him. Like I enjoy Locke's stuff, but that's fair.
1: I put eyeless priest. In if the
2: eyeless yeah. priest has as much page time as Locke, then yes, he'd be my absolute favorite. Fair, fair. You want to go on the plot? Yeah. What'd you give? Plot out of ten. I gave it an 8.5 out of 10.
1: Very strong. Is this your Very highest strong. category? I believe so. Yeah. This is my highest category. Okay, I gave it a 7.5. Higher than characters and emotional impact for me. Um, but still, still didn't break the 8. As in, I still thought it was real good. Uh, what You rating it that highly. What floored, maybe not floored is the right word. What really got you going, this is great? Mainly, it's
2: the big thing is shifting from a plot, uh, shifting from a heist heist plot to a revenge survival plot, and the interweaving of it was full of what uh, Trey Parker always talks about with, and then, or no, therefore, 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 and not and then. The entire time, you don't know where the story's going at any point, because something some A twist happens, and it completely changes the direction of the story, and I never knew where we were going, and that was exciting gotcha. for me. Loved that. All the parts made sense. Yep. At the very minimum, it all made sense, and it was coherent. Maybe I would be like, oh, I don't know if I like this. I can nitpick some things that maybe didn't work as well for me. Yeah. But they all made So perf- coherent. So coherent, yeah. and add on top of that of what this plot does is not only is it coherently woven together, it also ties in the character's story. It gives great character journey for all of them. The world building feeds into the story and Mm. vice versa. There's not a... When it comes to weaving the story, he doesn't have big exposition dumps and throw off the pacing.
1: You're exploring the world and it's well sprinkled in would you say that the intermissions threw off the pacing for you at times or did you like that it was chapter on chapter off for intermission then current intermission then current
2: i liked it more often than not mainly because the chapter that was a flat the flashback chapter Mm -hmm. often gave us great context for the um present day chapter. The best example of best. that
1: was my favorite moment where it flashed back and went to the present again was where we found out what the Bonds Mage did and how they destroyed what the Theron area or they basically burnt everything except for a single chair to remind people of the destruction and chaos and no one messes with Bonds Mages. And then in the present day, Locke goes, nice bird, asshole, to the Bonds Mage. That or he said something like that. Yeah. And just to show Lachlan Moore's characters emphasize because you just found out what these bonds mage do, and he basically <laughs> gave him the bird to the bird. <laughs> so yeah. you're going, whoa, oh, okay. That that's done really well. That
2: mm-hmm. happens several times, too, of how is Locke gonna get out of a jam? Mm-hmm. And they have a great prequel of like you see where the skill comes from, and so yeah. you have a hint. It's almost like a Zelda game where in like Ocarina of Time, you're going through the game, and the level gives you a certain item. You get the hook yeah. shot. You get the grappling hook. And then later on, the boss is like, oh, to beat the boss, you have to shoot the grappling hook at the eye and everything. The book does that exact same thing of you yeah. get the, the flashback chapter of you learn a little bit of Locke's skills and a lesson that he learns then, and then you get to present tanko. that's the skill he learns to beat the guy. It I... I'm that's so, just mm. it's great I'm, it's not that difficult of a concept no no no. but it's just
1: satisfying to read it makes you feel smart like you filled in the blanks. oh yes it's that whole thing of progress progress play. it's like oh i i read that it's paid off yeah. it's mini progress <laughs> it's, it's, and in off. the whole story yeah. i i'm so sorry to one of our patrons I think it's coop that said this i'm so sorry if i got it wrong because it might have been somebody else mm-hmm. that was saying this that the same plot structure here is just like the movie slumdog millionaire have you ever seen it Long time ago. It's same thing of where he's on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and he has to answer questions on who wants to be a millionaire. And it shows flashbacks to something in his life that showed him how he knows the answer yeah, yeah. to the question. So, same thing of like going back and forth, present day, just mm-hmm. like Locke's doing here. And the Stay in Progress, prog- Promise, Progress, Past of the whole book, I would put it this way I want to see what you think of this and we can get specific. Okay. I, was, I thought it was a fantastic promise. I was in, especially the prologue. Mm. Loved the promise. I liked, uh, it was real good progress. Real good progress. And then I thought it was a fine payoff. It was satisfactory payoff. And that is where my, mm. that is where my more 7.5 out of 10s come from. We could break down where and what and why. But I went from fantastic promise, good, good progress, to decent payoff. Good. I was satisfied.
2: I think I was more excited with the, progress than Mm -hmm. you but i do kind of agree with the payoff maybe as a touchdown but there is one moment that was essential to me for me to love the payoff at the end of the day the reason why i'm giving it so high is mainly if this was just simply the revenge story i don't like it just lock one at the end he beat the bad guy he beat the great king and he goes off fine what makes it special and just so complete is that the death toll where he sinks the, Mm -hmm. he gets them to sink the ship with all of it, his gold, Mm -hmm. all their gold, all their stash. And he sinks that to the bottom of the sea. Right. Right. And. Perfect. That's the perfect ending that was needed for this story. It, tied it the message the character felt like really learned something and paid the price it was I, I loved that part of the ending it was my favorite part and ah just it worked it also paid all the way back to the very beginning the homage of like the the whole idea of the mm-hmm. paying a death death toll what what do they call it the death yeah death toll ooh Death ta- me. It's not death tax. But no, debt? Unsure.
1: Unsure. But that was amazing. Yeah. There, there were moments of that parallel structure where you also had the wait for Gene moment where he hugs the Grey King in the end. Like, I just have to hold you, wait for Jean long enough. Where we got flashbacks earlier of waiting for Jean. Mm-hmm. So the, the moments of him burning the ship with all of his gold on it, and then at the very beginning getting like, oh, you have this debt to pay off. Those moments that just, the payoff is there for these high key moments, which you definitely felt because it went. Uh, I, I read this whole book and it feels like it wasn't a waste. What this plot doesn't do, it doesn't waste moments that don't show up later. For the mm-hmm. mo- for the most significant part, but I want to go quickly to, to promise first because before we get to the end of the sure. book, the promise of the world. Why I think we both loved it so much. It sets up this world perfectly in tone. That grim light tone of, it's a grim world, but you have these light characters, and you have this kid Locke Lamora with a lot of potential, and you want to see where he goes. And of course, you have the Thief Maker, and Nylas Pierce, which were some of my favorite characters that elevated it. But that that point of Locke owing a bunch of money and the inciting incident really starting with with the book is I think it was the moment where they start the ruse against the Don Salvara and that, that ruse is starting to begin in the book. We, we got our introduction to the world, but something about that promising, that promise hitting so much, it, it expanded for me on what is this world that we are in? Why are kids treated this way? Uh, why? Why the hell did this thief maker have to sell this kid? What What did he do, and how did he kill these kids? Because that's or how did he kill these guys? Because that's the story. The peer said, "Hey, the thief maker sold you to me. I want you to tell me how you got those kids killed, or those whoever they were killed." And we're like, "Whoa! What is Lamore doing?" So the mystery and the curiosity is there. Had no idea where the book was going to go from that, because the reveal of the eyeless priest. Not being being a whole schemer himself is fascinating, and you're going, how did he put up this scheme? Who is this guy? What's their connection? I was in for that promise. Mm-hmm. I you're in a total agreement. I, I imagine, yeah, complete agreement. And, mean, the and, uh, the reveal of the eyeless priest being a fraud himself was yeah. just perfect. And then when we get into the progress of the book in that middle portion, the best the best pr- moments for me were. Locke's schemes and the things I couldn't have think of. When you feel like the mm. the director, the author is smarter than you, which 99.9 are, unless you write a book. Okay, if 100% are, unless you write a book. Then 99.9% of authors <laughs> are, okay? And it's the case where all these schemes and ruses he's coming up with, are like, oh, that's how you would extract more money out of the Don. You pretend to be the guards. It's really satisfying plot moments of going... Yeah, and it seems very efficient too. It doesn't seem like wasted time of that's that's a more complicated plan. There's an easier way to do like that. Like Carter Ben. Like Carter Ben, but you get what I mean of that mm. moment where a, a, the first portion of the plot uh, I would I would break it down this way. The plot is in simple terms this. The rusing against Don Salazar with the wine, which was really cool for for mm. well, a lot of reasons. And then there's the midpoint of where the Grey King starts to um, emerge and Locke gets into predicament in the middle where the, where the Grey King wants him to pretend to be himself, the Grey King, mm-hmm. and Kappa Barsavi says, I want you to show up to face the Grey King. So he now has to be in two, the, the same place and two, two people. He has to be two people at once in the same place and that's our big conflict at the moment. What do you I, think of that? I personally believe that's the inciting incident. No that way. Ev-
2: no, everything before <laughs> is status quo. The reason I say it is like the scheme is really entertaining, all this stuff. But sure, the world, like there's not conflict. That's that's what they do. Like, there's, not, there's not a big change for when they're doing their main scheme. It seems like everything's working out. Everything's fine. They've done this before. And then the real change of the story, the, the moment that the characters have to change is when the
1: Grey King comes in. Well, I, I don't think it's just the change moment because the incident incident usually has to happen much earlier, and especially with the the moment of change is the world before the characters we're getting before with Moore as a kid and with the Thief Maker and the Eyeless Priest. The, okay, the, you could look at it that way, like, but i also that, get yeah. the
2: present day as well at the exact same time. So I don't know if it's those are also the it's characters, characters woven, before, right? So uh, that's kind of how I saw it. Where yeah. up until the Gray King, yeah. yeah. You're kind of seeing like their status quo and what they are like before. Mm. And you're just getting accustomed to them. And then the Great King throws everything into a wrench and now you have the new right. story.
1: I was seeing the starting conflict as the first big the, the first heist we're seeing him doing. Mm. It's like, hey, what's before we know he's learning, he's doing this, like Locke's doing these smaller schemes, he's getting in trouble, he's a bit reckless. They're older now. After after we got the picture of this world, what's the first height? Well, not neither here nor there. Sure. Both these both these things happen in the plot. What yeah. did you what did you think of that big conflict moment where he has to be in two places at once? It's just exciting. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know how he was gonna actually do it. I mean,
2: ultimately it's a very not simple but logical solution of mm. you gotta get out of the cop's plans, you know, oh, like yeah. fake fake your sickness and all that. Like mm-hmm. fair enough. But also how quick that went. Like, I thought that would have gone on longer. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Uh, the Grey King would make him do that multiple times. The fact that it was just wrapped up immediately. I was and, surprised. And it, that was the Grey King's way of getting rid of Locke as well. Yeah. So get rid of Locke and also um, make the Kappa think that you got he got rid of him. And basically to yeah. um, surprise him later. Mm-hmm. Good plan. Good right. plan on the Grey King. Get rid of an obstacle and keep your keep your enemy um, in the dark
1: and make your enemy think they beat you. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good plan. I will say the plan from the Grey King that... Oh, well, yeah. The plan from the Grey King that I thought was a little bit strange to go through all of that, Locke made the point to the Grey King of, hey, you could have just taken my money. You didn't have to go... Like, you didn't have to kill my friends and do all that like why are my friends dead you literally could have taken the money i would have never seen you again all this and his response to that was like a thief always uh, a thief wouldn't let me take or what's the exact line here he says um what thief does not fight to hold what he has which makes sense like what what the why would a thief you'd want revenge on me then but in hindsight, I just think there was a the the villain had to go through extraordinary measures to go like way overboard to kill this side character Locke, who in the Gray King's perspective, Locke's kind of like potatoes.
2: And also, but think about this: mm-hmm. is this a flaw or is this a feature? Mm-hmm. That the Gray King went through exactly what Locke went through. Of the Gray King, his position was stolen, his family was killed, yeah. and it's a
1: revenge story. Oh yeah, it's yeah. so like. Why does he not think that Locke would do the exact same thing? That's, that's to me in my head of what I was thinking of going, he's, what, he's went through this and he's doing the same thing to Locke. Maybe that's to emphasize the message and so forth, but I, I guess I didn't understand the Grey King's character enough and his backstory of why the, a, a big reveal with the Grey King and who is he? And one plot thing that was moving me is who, what's this mystery of the Grey King? Why is he doing this all? Who is he? And then the reveal comes, it's like, you know, it's a revenge story in his end which we don't understand entirely. And then he does the same thing to Locke. I didn't get the logical connection of why he thought that was the smart thing to do.
2: Well, maybe it was more a delaying tactic. So what did the gray king do? He yeah. went off and he prepared for years, oh, building yeah. up back his money and his assets and his ability, all this stuff, mm-hmm. and then came back. Locke got up in round 2 and just went after him mm-hmm. without any money, with most of his friends dead and also the great king thought Locke was dead too so it's like it's first hey let's just kill him like which is the smart decision get him out of the way but then also hey let's kill the rest of his family so even if he does get revenge he's gonna have less people to help him and like if he gets revenge it's gonna be years from now not now which is the troublesome time Mm. maybe that's it
1: yeah I guess again, it's it's not a. Um, I think yeah, you're more right. It's the, it's not that it doesn't make sense. I guess I wanted more from the Gray King. Sure. So it might be just more of a. I don't get in his head, and it's the villain, of course. It just seemed like a very extreme measure. Uh, he's the villain, right? But no, I, you
2: have other <laughs> villains, which will be like yeah, they'll beat down the hero, but then not finish him off when they have the That's chance and they should. Yeah. Where this one, Gray King's not, not taking really any chances Mm-mm. of. No, I'm gonna. Locke is a potential obstacle. I'ma kill him and his and his whole all of his friends. Yeah, and take all his money. I'm doing it all. I'm wiping him out. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so he goes to the extreme level because he doesn't want anything getting in his way.
1: Yes, and he needed that forty thousand white crowns to pay off the rest of the bonds mage. Right, so that, that's yeah. why he needed the money. I got yeah. I guess I agree with you. I. I agree with you. Didn't my emotion wasn't there, I guess. Sure. Um, and with with the ending, I think the payoff portions of it that hit real well were like you're saying, him burning the bow and getting that debt in the end. So if it was just revenge, you're totally right, wouldn't have been as satisfactory. My my more qualm with it, I guess, or the how it wasn't super, super satisfying of an ending. Good book, of course was brought up when we were having our discussion before of the statues mm-hmm. being the final boss moment of like this, this being the grand plan by the Grey King. I think you want to say your idea that you had that would have tied in the plot. Yeah. I, that really convinced me to lower my plot a little bit because oh. it, it did <laughs> yeah. because I was I was thinking why this whole grand plan with the Grey King and really that focal point, the payoff, is really down to the Grey King and his plan and Locke versus him. Yeah. And, and this, kind of- is th- this moment of where these statues come into play. Go ahead, explain that. So uh, for those who have read the book,
2: the, the Grey King's ultimate plan is to take down these nobles, and so he has the poison, petrifying um, device inside these statues that once they break, they release this gas over the gala, which only would get the nobles and some regular people, sure. but Grey King doesn't care about a few uh, innocents in the way. But it's kind of just thrown in there, these statues and the mechanism and all this stuff. I, I, they did set up... He, uh, Scott Lynch set up the petrifying poison before this mm. in like a flashback. And so that's kind of set up. Mm-hmm. But what I think would would have been better, because uh, got, uh, the Grey King was involved in kind of ruining Locke's plan with the wine, Yeah, that it would have been interesting that one of the wrenches thrown in is the Grey King ship brings a big shipment of this special wine, which basically shows, like, hey, Locke was lying that the, there was no wine. And maybe Locke would be like, actually, no, I've been planning this heist. Like, there shouldn't be a shipment. Like, there is a actual delay. There is a problem. Like, how does the Grey King have this, this wine shouldn't exist? And realize that the poison is put in this you know, special import wine and that wine is given to the gala.
1: Because our high story is focused on the wine mm-hmm. and then it would have felt like that was like the whole wine sequence was a lot more paid off. And ah, the, the information we know Locke has would have solved the problem. I love that solution. Yeah. I just love how it ties in with the high story and the revenge story. Because another thing, uh, a part of it, the, the ending was the convenience of it. I think Orkish mentioned this as well, where, the ending felt convenient in that he had the option to either save the people or go after the great great king that's how it was kind of proposed by the bonds mage if it's either this or that and he gets to do both which is good and fine it was kind of, it, it seemed like the easy way out of less uh, there were less consequences of course we had consequences with bug dying and the, some of his fellowship dying but the end moment was this or this and that's the conflict that's the decision you have to make what are you going to do and he has this fight with the Grey King and wins, and the people are saved, and he pays off his debt. Good that we get the happy ending, but I guess I was expecting what I was promised from the book was more of a tumultuous or this, it's this grim light. So I thought it was going to be a bittersweet end, and we got the bitterness with the deaths that didn't impact us as much because of what we mentioned in characters. But I guess I imagined the ending the ending chapter, that ending climax portion, to have a bittersweetness to it, of like the villain to have some upper hand or something, where Locke doesn't get everything in the end. Mm. That's what I was expecting, though, because of how I read into the story. Do you agree with that, or kinda? Cause I have more of a problem with that
2: ending fight scene with the Gray King. Sure, sure. The fact that Locke is trying to just go fist with him, yeah. even though yes, Locke is not winning. He's just delaying. Mm-hmm. It's just still weird to even have Locke fight at
1: all, I think. Because he's not a fighter. Guy. He's, he's not a fighter. He's the ruse artist. I yeah. would think
2: the Grey King would just wipe the floor with him in like two seconds. Because the Grey King is a pirate. He has a lot of fighting experience, I, I would think. But, eh. I would think it probably would make more sense that Locke saves the people, pays back his debts, but it causes financial harm to the Grey King. But the Gray King lives, mm. and Locke and Jean have to leave the city because the Gray King is there. They can't continue, but that's the way to escape. They, mm. I would think that would be the choice that had to be made, and that'd probably be more satisfying.
1: Sure, because I, I guess you could argue the the bitterness at the end is they, they still they pissed off a lot of the Komorei elite. The Komorei elite, so they the, can't stay. All uh,
2: their friends are dead. Yeah, all all for, their money's gone. Yeah. They pissed off the, ma- the Magi. It's, so yeah. they're probably going to get some heat for that. Exactly, Th-
1: it's, Things it's, are not great. It's not that bad things didn't happen. It's the order of it. And it's that feeling of I felt too sweet in the final chapters and portions where, yes, the, there's conflict leading up going into the second book of they did piss off the Bonds Magi. Totally. So how are they going to solve that issue? But yeah. the conclusion of this book is very much... In the same way. However, I'm wording that. But I want to say a good thing because mm-hmm. I did... Uh, the plot is very... I love the ruses. and It's so tight. It, it is. It's very tight. And I like the back and forth just like you do of the intermissions in the present day. My favorite part about the payoff in the end, although maybe the portions that didn't were the Grey King and some of those that we just talked about, but I loved seeing Locke at zero again and having the ruse's way to, to get the... Remember Margio, I think was his name, but having the ruse's way... To, oh, to get the clothes. To get the clothes, the waiter clothes, to then get in front of Margio to that step of going from he has no resources at all and having to build that up. Well, it just goes shows his skill. Yes. Like yeah. he even with nothing,
2: Locke has his mind, and Locke actually is incredibly resourceful. Yeah. Like you can take everything from him, but you can't take his skill. That's exactly. funny. Exactly. But also the satisfying payoff of Locke with no money, very few friends now. Everything's at The last tool he has is to just bear himself open to the spider and go like, just say like, hey, Locke, no more ruse, no more lies. Here's the plan. Here's what's happening. Please help. I don't want everyone to die. Yeah. would <laughs> not be great. And, there's and that worked. Moral of the story, too. And To win, Locke had to give up the thing he cares about most, which is, the game, yeah. the, the
1: heist. Yeah, So it's definitely good, solid book, and I don't mean to harp harshly, be harp on harshly too much of the <laughs> ending because it really it was satisfying in in a lot of the sense. But you want to move on to dialogue and prose time. I am because this is this is this is a moment. What did you rate that out of ten? An eight point two five. I gave eight seven five. Eight seven five. He's, great banter, great description. It
2: interweaves of. You get characterization of who these characters are. You underst you understand more about the world through everything. Wow,
1: yes. great writing! The unique voices as well at the same time of your thief, your thief maker, your the chains, the eyeless priest. And I want to refer to this one moment. I, one thing that Scott does masterfully, I think, his his dialogue. It's like nine, ten out of ten, and his prose is like real good. But the mm. the great parts of Scott Lynch is are his dialogue and how the characters speak. And th- this is from TW underscore I-A-N on Twitter. And he put a blog post about this that I think perfectly illustrates all of Scott Lynch's prose here and what he does so perfectly in his dialogue. Mm-hmm. So here here's a line where the thief maker held up three crooked fingers, as though on cue. Business, he cried. Three items of business, and so the blog poster is saying. So he progresses through these these first three points, as it's left to the reader's imagination to see him counting these off the um, the twisted digits. Then, once he's gone through his three points, he sums it up like this: The rules are simple. You'll learn them all in good time. For now, let's keep it like this. Anyone who eats, works. Anyone who works, eats. Which brings us to my fourth, oh dear children, children, do an absent-minded old man the favor of imagining that he held up four fingers. This is my fourth important point. And then the blog poster explains there's no description of action here, but it's so easy to imagine that fourth aimless finger twitching. Like through the dialogue what this, this block are saying through the dialogue of what the thief makers saying, you can imagine what he's doing and what movements he's making because of the words and the attention that it, what he's saying to the kids. Mm-hmm. And he does that all the time with different dialogue, not just the thief maker doing that, but all sorts of characters are saying things that are giving you visualization of what's happening in the scene around you and doing both at once is awesome. So, yeah, so you don't have to have the. He said while walking across the room. It's while twitching the four. A worse, a worse author would have held up the three fingers, stopped the dialogue tag, and been like his fourth, aimless. The the the, the, the uh, what do you call it when you don't have an extra limb? of uh, ver ver amputated? No, not just amputated, It's like that. Starts with a V. Damn, we're so bad with words. What are it's, you talking about? Um, when when someone doesn't have a an arm vestige. Vestige, that I okay. only got to it, but a vestige, missing finger. They would have paused the dialogue, explained all of the visualization, then got back to the dialogue. Mm. Scott Lynch does it just like that. Yeah, that's that, the best. That is part. impressive. That is really good. Did, what did you notice anything else that made his dialogue or prose really impressive? Because that's the thing that stood out to me beyond anything else. No, that
2: that's right there key. Then also, it's proper interweaving of world building with the scenes instead of having information dumps i don't think he really ever does that because his version of an info dump would be the flashbacks and it the flashbacks are just an interesting beeline story so oh, it, uh, yeah. it doesn't feel like an info dump but to be fair it's story <laughs> if you consider the flashbacks info dump
1: <laughs> half the book's an info dump right but it's done in such a way that it doesn't feel like that. It feels plot focused. It feels like yeah. you need to know that to understand what's going on in the rest well, of the plot.
2: Also, it's you're not stopping. It, there's a story being told there at the same time. It's yeah. just
1: interwoven. Yes, yes. Now, do we have the f- the same favorite uh, the favorite dialogue portion of the book? The chant. Oh yes, I love it. I haven't written down of yes. what makes the fellow why I love the idea of the fellowship so much. Maybe not the specific characters in pop, but you just got this brotherly feeling of the gentleman bastards, where they have their saying that they do when they're drinking, they go. I only steal because my dear old family needs the money to live. Liar they chorused in unison. I only steal because this wicked world won't let me work in honest trade, Caldo cried, hoisting his own glass. "'Liar! I only steal because I have to support my poor lazy twin brother whose indolence broke our mother's heart!' Galdo elbowed Callow as he made this announcement. "'Liar! I only steal!' said Jean, "'because I've temporarily fallen in with bad company! (laughs) Liar!' (laughs) At last, the ritual came to bug. The boy raised his glass a bit shakily and yelled, "'I only steal because it's heaps of fucking fun!' Bastard! they all yelled <laughs> just reading that scene to me just gets me going what a cool way to get your get your your fellowship together and oh yeah just feel like they they have a history because when you show a tradition he didn't explain again the the efficiency of the dialogue here he didn't explain oh they had a they had a chant yeah. that they've done for decades now you just go right into just saying the dialogue and having them chant goes they've done this hundreds of times and it fills in the imagination gap in your head. And you go, that's lovely. They feel whole.
2: Well, also, it's just they seem like fun. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They're fun
2: people. <laughs>
1: I, I want to have drinks with them. They yeah. sound great. They do. They do. But not uh, with Arter Ben's office. <laughs> no drinks. No. For them. <laughs> what What did Arter Ben
2: have that's anything close to that? What did he do? What did he do with his like companion? What was his friend's name? Rock, I think. Rack.
1: Rack. Yeah, I think rack.
2: Did they have any tradition thing that they were like? No,
1: no, probably. I don't know. I don't remember anything. You want to hear more good lines from Locky? Let me let me give you some more good feels, okay? These are are some of the best lines according to Goodreads. There's no freedom quite like the freedom of being constantly underestimated. Nice line. Nice line. Very there are true. only three people in life you can never fool. Pawnbrokers, whores, and your mother. Since your mother's dead, I've taken her place. Hence, I'm bullshit proof. Pretty good line. <laughs> uh, another line of, you can't help being young, but it's past time that you stopped being stupid. Nice. And lastly, this, this is a good one. If reassurances dull pain, nobody would ever go to the trouble of pressing grapes. Isn't that neat? Okay, that, that's a fun one to think about. That that,
2: that, uh, that's really
1: good. That's really fun. <laughs> that's it. So I'll stop hammering those lines. I always like to fig, find out best lines for books. Those are some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, what good reads highlighted. You want to go lastly into the world building slash magic system. What did you give world building? Well, Rich, I'm honored to tell you. I gave it an eight point seven five. I, I gave think it an eight point two five out of ten. Great. It's, Fantastic. So I, I'm in the stance of, I think the world building dialogue were the best portions of this book. Seems like you thought um, the plot was, but you also really loved the dialogue and the world building. Yeah, I, I think the plot
2: was just so well interwoven into the world building. Oh, I can't argue and so I, It's really yeah. hard for me to separate those two. Sure. But if I want to get into the world building, oh the, yeah. I think we can agree on the two best aspects. Oh, let's
1: see if we do. Okay. Two best aspects. Two best
2: aspects. Was... The Church of Thieves, just okay. the whole religion behind it, everything yep. about it,
1: and the ma- the Bonds Mage, Bonds Mage. I agree. With are, are we kind of an agreement? I agree with you. with Number one, Bonds Mage. Number two, we disagree. Really? Yeah. What? It- My favorite world building moment was that two or three page chapter about handball oh <laughs> do you remember that that was pretty funny I know you're actually right I just really love the handball moment that was just real fun it
2: just it was a great example of like just how brutal the world is it's like
1: oh and, and the come I love how the, the different society or people took it where the whole handball story it, it, very quick summary of they had this handball game and one side won, and there was a like a bad call of like oh you were over the line or whatever and 35 years passed and this Kamori who lost goes to the guy who made the bad call or whatever and kills him. And th- there's this whole story. It's explained way better than I just explained it. But the takeaway from that is all the others, the Valdens, all, all the people think this is a story that's told to people because the Kamori are all goddamn crazy. The Kamori, when they tell the story, they're proud and they go as a reminder against procrastinating in matters of revenge. <laughs> I'm just, you know, if you can't take satisfaction immediately. <laughs> you know, it's the virtue of having a long memory that really counts. So the Komori, this thieving world takes this as a, yeah, you're damn right you got them. And everyone else is like, these people are nuts. <laughs> and so it just gives you that extra twist of, that's where our characters are. They are crazy. They're, They're nutty. <laughs> and it makes it, I guess that's what makes some of these immoral gray characters so much more likable. Because you're in a world yeah. like this. And when we were talking, we kind of glossed all over the place when we were talking about tone. Mm-hmm. but maybe one of the best things about this is the tone's perfect for the book for for what's going for it's you you can place this world and know what characters fit in this world and also the descriptive mm-hmm. settings as well what do you think about the world itself and the false light oh just and the the setting of okay yeah
2: I loved how this world has so many other details and interesting aspects that we will never read about we'll never see nope because that's for like, Big main characters. I can see a totally different story taking place of like a fledgling, like, you know, your farm boy, your, your innocent vagabonds that learns that they actually have magic powers. And they're in this. They're a Bonds and, Mage. and they're, they find out that they have a rich lineage to the old civilization. And they're having like all the bullshit yep. of like your main fantasy adventure story. Yeah, sure. And we're never going to get that. But the world could work in both. It fits both types of stories. And now we're just getting the NPC, the uh, side characters yeah. main story. So we'll never find out because Locke doesn't give two shits
1: about like the ancient past, the spires, anything of that. The, there's this ancient society of what the Eldrin are they called? Yeah. And they're the ones that created the Bonds Mage are trying to say they have the magic of the Eldrin. And this ancient society that you can't destroy these false lights, that you can't destroy these, what is it, crystals? Or, yeah. And, and what is that? It's like, what, imagine, what it? imagine being cavemen and the pyramids are next to you. Like, what was the society? Yeah. That's a cool. And Locke doesn't
2: care <laughs> at
1: all. Not a cent. Not a cent. And he, he, we're getting this low perspective of the world where it makes sense that he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. He's at such a low strung of he's steving around. Like, we're not supposed to know what exactly what the bonds mage. What, why like.
2: care about the bonds mage when like the only thing you should be worried about is staying the hell away from them. There yeah. is no scheme. Like Locke doesn't have a scheme for them. There's no. nothing like. Oh, not even in his wildest dreams does he ever think like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go scheme the bonds mage. Yip-dee-dee. No, absolutely not.
1: Even Locke's arrogance is like. <laughs> nope. No, 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 no! We're gonna stay far away. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that mm. that point of the bonds mage creating this threat that you you typically don't see that in a book. Yeah, that's so freaking cool. And so your your favorite one was bonds mage, and go on the other one that I cut you off with. I love the
2: church, the yeah. church of thieves. The
1: go on that, yeah.
2: It's perfect. It is. Great. It's. Yeah. I'm thinking of other fantasy religions, and often. It'll just be like a spin on Catholicism or a spin. It's, I don't know. It's just normally not that fun. Where this one, it has its own unique rules and it's ridiculous because it's the church of the thieving God. But also they all take it seriously. And because they take it seriously, you take it seriously. And it's like, normally you'll often get like, being opposed to the certain religion, like the religion is normally the enemy. In this case, it's on like it's on the good side. It's weird. Is, is it wrong to say the church is a character? I guess kind of wrong because it affects all the other characters. But what you're thinking of, Father Chains, he imperfectly encapsulates the yeah. Church of Thieves. Yeah. and I love it. Uh, we talked about the death death toll. Yep, uh, we talked about. Um, how you're supposed to
1: steal, why you're supposed to steal it. The eyeless priest who is a, as a character moves the world building in so many ways where all the lessons we see all of our characters go through, there's these small things. The The best part about the world building in this book is beyond just beyond the big things. So we know the bonds mage are memorable. The, 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 Church of the Thieves is memorable. All these big things. The Eldrin, the, the false lights memorable. I had to put tabs in the book as I was going just because I wanted to remember to bring up a couple things. But there's the small things you'll never remember. Like a year, two, two days from now, we won't remember these details, but in our head it churns and goes, that's what makes it a complete world. Like for example, Father Chains, there's a moment where he's tapping his index finger of his right hand against his left palm, the Kamori marketplace gesture for get on with it. Something like that. Right? It's not, not a big deal, but then you have little things like that where um, there's flowing, when, when someone's signing something, they're flowing lines of ink above the seal, her signature in the curving Theron script that had become something of a fad among the literate nobles in the past few years. Then you have another small thing where when he's teaching the kids at the Valdrin dinner party, um, Glado, um, he would, if, if he was at a Valdrin dinner party, he would hold out the chair for the vadron without invitation he would hold it out to be polite but a varari lady would stand beside the chair to show they want it pulled out instead of you pulling out before they come the, the ladies in varari would go up to the chair first because they don't want it's impolite to assume they want to sit down so it's these little tabs that i put in of you'll never remember that detail right it's just a super small thing and it's not mm-hmm. that important but he it's those small details make the world and put you in the head of the sense of suspension of disbelief of Scotland's thought down to the detail of the signature signing above for this was a fad lately. And not to mention, this was a bigger part of the plot, but the wine being important in this world, all these little things that add up in your head that are hard to describe. When you think back, when you think back to the lives of Locke Lamoro, you'll remember those big things, but, the further you get away from the book, I don't want to forget those moments of, ah, this felt so expansive because he, he touched on everything and it was so subtle. I just want to give props for that. That's great insight on it. I wouldn't have brought that up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Oh, We're gonna, Can great. we just end the podcast? No, not just, having... not the episode. <laughs> like, let's, <laughs> let's end it on that. <laughs> We're having good vibes.
2: Today's just a positive day. It's great.
1: I'm going to. Let's see you next week. Yeah. Bye. bye.